The reading from Habakkuk this week is from chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. It's on the front of your bulletin. If you want to follow along, uh, I'll go ahead and read that now. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. This is the word of the Lord. We sang a new song this morning. And as we were... As we were singing that song, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, it, it mirrors the thoughts that are in this book of Habakkuk that we've been looking at together. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? Habakkuk brought his complaints to God. No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Jonathan Edwards is a favorite preacher and author of mine. I have a hard time understanding him, and I have to read the things that he wrote over and over again and slowly until I understand them. But when I understand what he's saying, I've been really encouraged and really helped in my Christian life. He was probably the greatest philosopher and theologian that America has ever produced. I don't think anyone thought and could write the way that he did. And you may not know this, but believe it or not, he was fired from his church in 1750, he was fired from his church, and not just fired, the vote was 230 to 23 to expel him, maybe the greatest preacher in American history, to expel him from his pulpit. When the church board broke the news to Mr. Edwards, there was a man who was sitting by and watching this all unfold, and he described Jonathan Edwards this way, that faithful witness received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach 
of his enemies. Is your happiness out of the reach of your enemies? Is your happiness untouchable? Is your happiness out of the reach of your suffering or your sickness or your guilt or your difficulties? Or is your happiness like the waves that come in and then go out. And then it comes in and then it goes out. Habakkuk, he holds the key to indomitable joy. He knew where to find joy. He knew how to find joy. And I'd like to make sure that we see it today. That we understand this key to true and lasting happiness. But first, before I pray, I suspect that some of you, depending on your background, you may be questioning whether or not a Christian should be pursuing happiness at all. Maybe that sounds carnal to you. Maybe that sounds selfish to you. You say, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to be pursuing God's glory? Isn't it about Him are we really supposed to? Is it okay to pursue happiness? I thought that was a worldly thing. So let me read to you from a secondary source and then the primary source. The secondary source is that man who was kicked out of his pulpit. And he wrote this. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. The point he's making is that our joy and God's glory go together. God is glorified when our joy is found in him. He goes on. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory, and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies his idea 
of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also of his delight in it. So joy, if anchored in God, brings him glory. So that means that your pursuit of happiness, your pursuit of joy, if done in the right way, if done Habakkuk's way, your pursuit of joy is a pursuit of the glory of God. And then the primary source If you still are not convinced that you should pursue as a Christian happiness and joy, Philippians 4.4 commands it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It might as well say never be grumpy. Never be sour. Always, in every circumstance, no matter what, be joyful in the Lord. So let's obey God and pursue this joy together. Let's begin with prayer. Our Father in heaven, help us now. We pray that your word, your glory, as Mr. Edwards said, would reach our understanding and our emotion, that it would reach our mind and our heart, so that as we see you today, we would rejoice in you and you would get the glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Habakkuk. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you can find that book on page 737. If you're visiting with us today, this isn't normally what we do. We typically go verse by verse through a book of the Bible, but we're in the middle of a series on the minor prophets, and so we're doing more overview sermons of these books, trying to understand the message of each of these prophets, and then the message of all of them as a whole. And so today, we're continuing our look at this very unique book of Habakkuk. And I say unique because it's, it's different from all of the other minor prophets. Rather than the prophet speaking for God to the people, this is just the prophet speaking to God. So when we read this book of Habakkuk, it's like reading his journal. It is a journal of his back and forth with God. And you might remember, if you were here two weeks ago, that there are five parts to this book. And so let me remind you what was said in those first two parts, or those first four parts, excuse me, that we examined two weeks ago. Part one was Habakkuk's first complaint, and that is chapter one, verses two through four. 
His nation is falling apart, and they are falling into wickedness. And to Habakkuk, God appears idle. Chapter 1, verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? And so his question to God in that first complaint is, where are you? Chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Part 2 was God's first response, and that is in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. God responded in verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So Habakkuk had lost perspective. God was doing a work. God was working a plan. He was raising up Babylon to punish Judah for her rebellion. Part three was Habakkuk's second complaint. Chapter one, verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Babylon was more wicked than Judah. How could they be God's instrument of justice? So his complaint devolved from an accusation of idleness to wrongdoing. So in part four, God responds again. We find that response in chapter two, verses two through 20. He said first that he was not doing wrong. Judah was going to get what they deserved, and then Babylon was going to get what they deserved. Justice would be served. And then second, in 2.4, God actually dropped the key to unlocking joy in tough times. The righteous, God said, shall live by his faith. That's where we left off. And that brings us today to part five, the very last chapter and end of this little book. Will Habakkuk respond now with a third complaint? That's been the pattern So far, no, he will not. This time he does not complain, he sings. He's done complaining, and now he sings. If we take a step back, and look at the progression of this book. First, 
Habakkuk cried out to God. He cried out to God with his fear, with his doubt, with his worry, with his confusion, with his complaint. Second, he received the word of God. And then third, he sang. He cried out, Christian, listen. He cried out, he listened, he sang. And so he moved from grumbling to gratitude. He was unhappy. He talked with God. He heard from God. He was happy. His joy was restored. And note, this is important. God didn't do what Habakkuk wanted him to do. It's not like when Habakkuk heard from God, he heard that God was going to do what Habakkuk wanted him to do, that God was going to answer his prayer exactly the way he wanted it answered. Happiness did not show up because his circumstances changed or because his load lightened. No. He was reminded that God was at work for his own glory and the ultimate good of his people, and that was enough to restore this prophet's joy. So let's work through this last chapter together. There's an introduction to it telling us what it is in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. So this is a prayer. But I told you earlier that Habakkuk sung it. Why did I say that? Well, Shiganoth is either an instrument or it is a type of song. The other... The only other place it's used in, is in Psalm chapter 7, verse 1. And then if you scroll down and look at the very last sentence of the chapter, you'll read, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And then three different times we have the mysterious musical term, Selah. So this is a prayer. We're told that in verse 1. It is a prayer that ends up going public in song. And if you look at this with me, there is an obvious progression. So if you're taking notes, you might want to write this progression down. I've tried to make it easy for you to remember. This prayer moves from plea to praise, to pledge. Habakkuk pleads with God. Then he praises God. 
And then he pledges himself to God. Let's begin with Habakkuk's plea. And we find it in verse 2, chapter 3. Here it is. Read it with me. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What is he saying? Habakkuk has heard the report of the work that God has done. He has heard the testimony of God's greatness among his people. He is going to recall it and praise God for it in verses 3 through 15, which we'll read in a minute. God has come in wrath on his enemies, but he has shown mercy to his people among them. So Habakkuk's plea is that God will do what he's always done and what he has promised to do. I've heard, I know the report, God, of the work that you have done. Now in these difficult years that are coming, revive it. Do this work again. Make this work known again. In wrath, when you come in wrath to judge your enemies, remember, he says, mercy. Be merciful to your children who are among your enemies. That's his plea. And now let's look at verses 3 through 15. Here is Habakkuk's praise. This is the report that he knows, probably since the time he was a child. This is the testimony of what God has done. So I'm going to read it through. And I hope that it'll accomplish in you what it's clearly supposed to, and that is to put some images in your mind of the might and power and greatness of God. Here's a testimony of what he had done for his people up to this point. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, 
on your chariot of salvation. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. That is not cold, sterile language. That is vibrant imagery. It speaks to our mind and to our heart. It stirs our emotions. It would have been for Habakkuk and his audience. It would have been this picture of God as a warrior who had over and over and over again conquered his enemies, conquered his people's enemies, and rescued them from ultimate destruction. And they needed to be reminded of God's track record. They needed to be reminded of his faithfulness. And as they would be reminded of God's faithfulness and what he had always done and what he had promised to always do, this would provoke in them praise. So that's this middle part of Habakkuk's song. And we do the same thing today when we sing. And if you think about it, we have so much more to sing about. We're going to sing one more song in a while called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. If we were to write a chapter like Habakkuk did here, if we were to write a song like Habakkuk did here, these are the kinds of things that we might bring up that he couldn't bring up. It hadn't happened yet. But we sing, see from his head, his hands, his feet, Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? 
were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. To Christ, who won for sinners grace by bitter grief and anguish sore, be praise from all the ransomed race forever and forever more. Isaac Watts in 1707, you see, was doing the same exact thing Habakkuk was doing. He was declaring the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the greatness of God, so that his people could praise him. So that's his plea in this prayer. That is his praise in this prayer. And now finally he spells out his response. In verses 16 through 19 we have Habakkuk's pledge. And there are actually two pledges here. Each is signaled by the phrase, yet I will. You hear the pledge, the resolution, the commitment, yet I will. And he says it in verse 16 and in verse 19. So let's look at each of them. The first pledge, commitment, is in verse 16. I hear, pause, what does he hear? Well, he hears everything he's just told us about. He hears from God. He hears about God and who he is and what his works are and what his promises are. He hears the word of God. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. I hope this isn't oversimplifying what Habakkuk is saying. But he is saying, I am so so small. And God is so, so big. God and his ways and his will and his work and his plan is so beyond me that I hear of him and I hear his word and I tremble before him. And here's his pledge. Yet I will quietly wait 
for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. God was going to work his will. God was going to work his plan. And while he did, Habakkuk was resolved to quietly wait. Which is obedience to what God told him to do. At the very end of chapter 2, look, verse 20. This was the last thing God said before Habakkuk issues this prayer in response. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God said to Habakkuk, the Lord is in his holy temple. That means the Lord is in his throne room. The Lord is in his place of government. He is in his place of ultimate authority. That's where God is. So what should you do, little Habakkuk? You should, along with all the earth, keep silent before me. And so Habakkuk's first resolution here is, yes, Lord. I will quietly wait. What does that mean? What does it mean to wait upon the Lord? These are things that we say, that we read about. What does it mean when God calls us to keep silent before him? What does it mean when Habakkuk says that he will quietly wait? Here's how one great commentator explained it. To be silent is to bear the troubles allotted to us with a calm and resigned mind. I'll read that again and then the rest of what he said. To be silent before God is to bear the troubles allotted to us with a calm and resigned mind. Because when some trouble presses on us, we become turbulent and are carried away by our own fury. At one time we quarrel with God at another, we pour forth various complaints. And God says, don't do that. God says what you might say to your kids sometimes. Hush. Hush. My wife has a look. And everyone in the family knows what that look means. Sometimes the look progresses to a... My kids hear a snap anywhere and their heads perk up and look. Where's that coming from? You remember being a kid? 
doing something you shouldn't have been doing, saying something you shouldn't have been saying. And maybe mom or dad looked at you, they looked you in the eye, and they said, hush. This is what God says. Keep silent before me. Hold your complaints. Hold your grumbling. I'm a good God. I love you. I will care for you. I am working for my glory and for your good. But we're tempted when trouble comes our way to grumble. We're tempted to complain. We're tempted like Habakkuk to get fearful or worried or anxious or worse, angry. And God says we must keep silent before him. We struggle with God's providence. It is often mysterious and it is often difficult, but we must not give way to anger or irritation or complaint. We must see God as he is on his throne, in his holy temple, carrying out his perfect will. And as we rightly envision God where he is, we should instinctively close our murmuring mouth. So Habakkuk resolves at the end of his song, recounting the faithfulness of God, I will quietly wait. Jeremiah said the same thing. He lived to see Habakkuk's prophecy fulfilled. He lived to see Jerusalem destroyed by Babylon. And as he did, he wrote this in Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That is, to bear the troubles that God sends our way with a calm, resigned, trusting mind. There's a second resolve, a second pledge he makes. Not only will Habakkuk not complain, he will rejoice. This is next level. Here we get to this key to happiness. Circumstances haven't changed. In fact, when God unfolded his secret will for this prophet, this prophet learned that not only are your circumstances not going to change for the better, they're actually what? They're going to get worse. It's going to get more difficult. And yet here is Habakkuk rejoicing. How is that possible? I think about what takes me off track. It's not much. 
It doesn't take much. It could be a word. It could be a look. It could be a thought. And I'm, I'm unhappy. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, though everything goes wrong. These things that he's mentioning, these are signs of God's blessing. So he's saying these signs of God's blessing, should they disappear? All of them. Should these signs of God's blessing disappear, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, no matter what, no matter what, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. God makes my feet like the deer. I don't know if you've seen a deer run through the forest. It's an amazing thing. How quickly they just bounce through and around obstacles. If you're hunting deer, you can't and would never ever try and shoot a moving Deer. It's not going to happen. What's happening? The deer escapes. The deer escapes. Habakkuk knows I'm going to escape this troubled world. I'm going to pass through and around these obstacles. I'm going to make it out of here. I'm not going to crash on this side. I'm not going to crash on that side. God is going to keep me. And I'll escape. Not only that, he makes me tread on my high places. Treading the high places was the privilege of conquerors. They'd win the battle, and then they'd find the ridge, the high place that was overlooking the scene of war, and they'd look down over their victory. Habakkuk says, I know I'm going to escape. And I know 
I'm going to conquer. So I will rejoice, he says, in the Lord. In conclusion, let me say some things that I think are probably obvious to a lot of you. Let me help you answer a couple questions that, if you're a Christian, you're probably already answering. The first one is, how can I possibly be happy under any circumstance? And the answer, of course, is only in God. Only in God. Happiness or joy, which is abiding happiness, is found only in God. It is not found in any earthly relationship. No earthly relationship, as good and sweet as many of them are should be the ultimate source of your joy and your happiness. No relationship will bring you ultimate joy. No comfort, no amount of money is going to bring you ultimate happiness. No amount of success, no amount of admiration or acceptance from others. No matter how loved you are by others, no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how productive you've been, it will not be enough to sustain your joy. You have not been made to find joy in the things of this world. You have been made to find joy in God. So ask yourself, can I be happy under any circumstance? Ask yourself that honestly. Can I be happy under any circumstance or... Is there some set of circumstances that are so important that you cannot be happy without them? My friends, those would be idols. They will never satisfy. And they certainly can't save you. Christian, we should ask ourselves whether perhaps we are disciples only because our life circumstances have been pretty good so far. What would we do if Christ asked us to take up our cross in a very difficult way? What if following Christ meant more difficulty for you, more suffering? 
What if God asked you to put away a certain sin that you love? What if following him means that the future is going to be a very difficult path? Would you follow him then, or are you only following him because your life is pretty good and it's convenient and it's what the people around you are doing? Mark Dever asks these questions. Would you forego some particular pleasure because it is sinful and because you know that more joy can be found in Christ? Is the Lord your portion and your delight? Do you find earthly delicacies tasteless when the Lord has withdrawn the light of his countenance? Are food in the pantry and money in the bank account your true props or do you lean upon the Lord? Habakkuk learned and we're reminded true joy is only found in God. And then the second and final question, well, what is the pathway to that joy? How do we access that happiness in God? How did Habakkuk do it? Well, the first thing that we learn is that the trouble that comes our way is all part of the plan. So pursuing joy in your life is not trying to just get rid of all the circumstances you don't like and get the things that you want. Most of you are old enough to know that doesn't work. You get what you want, you get what you prayed for, and you're still not happy. It's still difficult. It's still a struggle. It's a lie. If I just had this next thing, if this would just go my way, it's always something else. And in fact, the difficulty that God brings your way, it's all part of the plan that you would have more joy in him. John Calvin wrote this. All desire to be happy. But as the thoughts of men wander here and there, there is nothing more difficult than so to fix all our hopes in God as to disregard all other things. I'm glad to know he struggled in the same way I do. Then he said this, It is necessary in this world that the faithful should, as to outward things, be miserable. Hold on. That doesn't sound right. It is necessary, he says, that as to outward things, Christians need to be miserable at times. At one time exposed to want, at another subject to various dangers, at one time exposed to reproaches and slander, at another harassed by losses. Why so? Because there would be no occasion for exercising hope were our salvation complete. Why is the misery necessary? Why is the struggle necessary? 
Why the trouble? Why the suffering? It drives us to God. Where ultimate joy is found. Walter Chantry said, There is great satisfaction for God's people to find God himself in times of severe want. When the material world lures us to intemperance and luxury, it is so easy to forget the Lord, neglect communion with him, and fail to depend on him alone. So what is the pathway to joy that Habakkuk lays out for us? I said it in the beginning. We've read about it through his book and in this last chapter. What did Habakkuk do? He cried out to God with his fear, his doubt, his worry, his confusion, his complaint. He cried out to God in prayer. When joy is scarce, when you are unhappy, when you're fearful or doubting or complaining, do you cry out to God? Second, he received the word of God. Do you receive the word of God? Do you read God's word? Do you study God's word? Do you meditate on God's word? Do you listen to the preaching of his word? Do you talk about his word? Do you take God's truth into your mind and into your heart, into your soul? And then third, Habakkuk sang. He praised God. Yet I will rejoice. So he cried out. He listened. He sang. He moved from grumbling to gratitude. He was unhappy and so he talked with God. And then he heard from God. And then his joy was restored. Is that the pattern of your life? Or do you turn to something else? Or look to someone else? Depend on some circumstance? Finally, John Newton said this. How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Sweet prospects, sweet birds, and sweet flowers have lost all their sweetness with me. Is God the ultimate source of joy in your life? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you help us now to take in this truth that we've studied today? To be reminded of you, who you are, and what you've done. To be reminded that you are glorified as we rejoice in you. And that we have everything we need by your word and through your Holy Spirit to have joy in all circumstances. But we're weak, God, and we need your help. So we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Every Sunday following every sermon, we respond. One of the ways we respond is by taking communion together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and following says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's remember, proclaim, and celebrate our Lord's death today. If you're visiting with us today, and if you are a Christian, you're welcome to take communion with us. That means that you are a baptized believer. You have turned from your sin. You have placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation. You have committed yourself to him, to his people. You're a part of this church or another church that preaches the same gospel that you're hearing today. If that's you, we want you to take communion with us. We ask that you come forward with everyone else. We'll have leaders up front with bread and juice. We ask you take the bread and juice, return to your seat, and then wait, and we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, in response to your word now, we turn our attention to the sacrificial death of your son. We remember this. We proclaim its glory to one another, and we celebrate that it has made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We love you. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.